Hey there, and welcome to the Brave Marriage Podcast. I'm Kinsey Dozinski, a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified professional coach, and this is a podcast for couples who want to grow as individuals, do marriage with intention, and live mutually empowered, purposeful lives. I'm so thankful you're here today, and I hope you've had a great week. If you're new to the show, we've been talking about change throughout January this far. Episode 31 was an introduction to looking at change systemically. Episode 32 was on how to change a habit. And episode 33 was on how to change an attitude. Now we're getting into my sweet spot, talking about how to change your marriage. And like I said in episode 31, in order to change anything effectively and long-term, we first have to understand how the system itself works, in this case, how the marital system works. But what I intended to be one episode turned into, oh, over an hour's worth of content. So what you're getting today is part one of a multi-part series. And I think, I hope you'll appreciate me breaking it down because each episode in this series will set you up for another piece of the puzzle. And it's vitally important that you understand these concepts in order because they're going to build upon one another. And as you've learned in the past three episodes about making change systemically, it's that when we try to make change without an understanding of how a system works, we inadvertently create unhelpful feedback loops that sometimes actually reinforce the very problem we're trying to solve. And therefore, we unwittingly sabotage the very changes we're trying to make. So today in part one, I'm going to explain to you how you and your spouse set up your own norm for relating, which then becomes the default mode that keeps sucking you back in when you're trying to make change. But before I do, this episode is brought to you by my free research-based relationship quiz. Have you ever wanted an insider's professional look at your relationship? Well, I've created a short quiz that lets you in on the state of your relationship based on four different components of marital health. Once you take that quiz, you'll receive an email to your inbox with your immediate score, and then the following day, an action step for your marriage, as well as a prayer for your marriage. So to get in on that free resource, just visit bravemarriage.com quiz. Again, that's bravemarriage.com quiz. Now, when you and your spouse got married, you quickly established a set norm for relating. Each of you brought your own personality, upbringing, social influences, and your own unique blend of relational dynamics and communication habits to your marriage. And similar to learning to live with a new roommate, you learn to live with this person, noting their need for alone time, time together, cleanliness, spontaneity, and other things you may not have known before. You learned how to work with each other as well as around each other, too, at times. The thing is, though, unlike a roommate, you married this person. You chose to commit your life to them and with that brought certain expectations. Everything from, this is how I always envisioned my home life with my spouse, to this is how I expected my partner to show up for me emotionally, sexually, relationally. And those dynamics are what make a marriage relationship unlike any other. No other adult relationship expects as much, demands as much, or desires as much. As I'm sure you already realize, that is what makes marriage so hard and complex. 
Because when you get married, you not only have to learn how to negotiate lifestyle, you also have to learn how to negotiate relational needs. And when I say relational needs, I am not just talking about a woman's need for romance or a man's need for sex. So just go ahead and clear those cliches from your mind. Instead, I want you to think Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I'll link to in the show notes. But the need for physical, psychological, and emotional safety and security, and our attachment needs for love and belonging. So in the beginning of your marriage, each of you begins to make bids for connection, as John Gottman calls them, in order to get your relational needs met. Your need for safety, security, love, and belonging. A bid for connection can be verbal, as in asking your spouse how their day was, so you're asking for an emotional connection there, or it can be nonverbal, as in sighing, which signals emotional distress, or grabbing your partner's hand, which signals closeness and comfort. To help you better understand bids for connection, I want to compare our bids for connection as adults to a baby's cry in infancy. You may be uncomfortable with this comparison, but like it or not, apart from marriage being a mutual and not a hierarchical relationship, a new marriage bears a resemblance to a new relationship between a parent and child. See, when a new baby is born, he or she has to adapt to the environment in order to survive. So pre-verbally, the only option an infant has to communicate his or her needs is to cry. So when the infant cries, what he or she is trying to figure out is, will my parent be there for me? Are they available when I need them? Are they attentive to my needs? And can I trust them to take care of me? But whether the child does or doesn't get their needs met, whether they learn to trust their parent or not, the child adapts to his or her environment anyway. They have to in order to survive. Well, let me ask you, are these not the same questions we have in our own inner dialogue when we get married? Will my spouse be there for me? Is he or she emotionally available when I need them? Is my partner attentive to my needs? And can I trust my spouse to care for and comfort me? What I'm trying to help you see is that marriage relationships are not only about learning to live together as two adults, but about growing to trust the other and develop a secure attachment to them. But just like children, in the first few years of your marriage, you quickly learn the lay of the land, albeit subconsciously. What I mean is, you learn which bids for connection are met by your partner and which ones are not. You learn that your bid for sex is paid attention to, but your bid for romance or affection is not. You learn that your bid for intellectual conversation is met, but your bid for emotional connection is not. You learn that your partner is responsive to your bids for co-parenting together or housework, but not so much responsive to your bids when it comes to taking care of you. In the early years, every couple begins to learn where each other draws the line. Every couple learns the limits of what each person is willing or capable of giving the other. But often we don't have language for this, this bumping up against each other's limits. We just feel it, this dull ache or sense of discontentment or lack of connection. And no one talks about it because we're newly married and of course everything is great, right? 
But the truth is, all of us have this relational disappointment when our partners or marriages fail to meet our expectations. But again, because we don't have language for this, we merely adapt in order to survive. And get this, we often adapt in the same way we did as children in our own families of origin growing up. And the reason I'm explaining all of this to you is because however we accommodate to each other or push and pull in those early years of marriage actually sets the stage for our marital dynamic and becomes our norm. And this is extremely important because Gottman's research points to, with over 90% accuracy, whether a couple's interactions are predictive of a lifelong happy marriage or are headed toward divorce. So again, what you practice now in the first few years is vitally important to the long-term health of your relationship. And we'll get to the change part in the latter half of this series, so hold on to this information. But what I'm about to explain to you now will help you clue into the particular way you tend to respond when your bids for connection fail. And this will give you some insight into the particular way your marriage may need to grow, because like I said earlier, you and your partner are both bringing to the table a unique set of relational dynamics and habits. Okay, when our bids for emotional connection fail, here are some of the ways we adapt our behavior. In the first category, some of us emotionally pursue our partners. So some of us protest in an attempt to get our relational needs met. So once we realize that simply asking didn't do it, we then begin to complain. And when that doesn't work, our complaining gives way to nagging then criticizing, then blaming, then insulting. And at the end of all that, if that hasn't worked, we ultimately distance ourselves and shut down. And that, by the way, is a sign that our relationship is in real trouble of surviving. Some of us in protest, unknowingly or knowingly, unfortunately in some cases, manipulate. What I mean is, some of us protest our partner's feelings or emotions because they make us so uncomfortable that the only way we know how to control our own reactions is to deflect, deny, or minimize our partners by making fun of them, putting them down, or gaslighting. And I know this form of protest sounds more extreme, and it is. It's really unhealthy and can give way and lead into emotional and verbal abuse. So if it's happening, you want to stop it immediately. But unfortunately, I have seen this happen even in well-meaning couples. In the second category, some of us emotionally withdraw from our partners. Some of us avoid our own relational needs by learning to cope in other ways. We settle for comfort over connection and buffer any emotion that we might otherwise feel if we let ourselves by turning to food or shopping or social media, pornography or other relationships even, to keep every void filled so that we don't have to feel the emotional pain of not getting our most basic relational needs met. We also avoid our relational needs by overemphasizing the areas in our marriage where we feel more competent. So we pride ourselves for our co-parenting skills, our problem-solving skills, our sex lives, or even our spiritual lives. And of course, right? Because that certainly feels more satisfying than paying attention to our emotional deprivation. 
Some of us withdraw by minimizing our relational needs by adapting ourselves to our marriages. We might come into marriage believing that it's not okay for us to have needs, or we convince ourselves that our spouse's needs are more important, and so we modify our own attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors to please and appease our spouse. So this is different than the past two episodes where we've talked about changing your attitude or behavior for the good of your marriage, because when we minimize our relational needs in this way, we do it in the name of love, when in actuality, we're doing it in hopes that we will be loved and get our relational needs met. And this is why it fits into the withdrawal category. Because even though we look loving and like we're pursuing emotional connection, we're actually withholding our own emotional experience and therefore internally withdrawing from the relationship. And finally, some of us deny our own relational needs altogether. We appear stoic and independent, believing we're above having any need at all. This is a lifelong self-protective mechanism to keep people at arm's length and avoid getting hurt. All of these actually are coping mechanisms, by the way. When our relational needs aren't perfectly met in marriage the way we think they will be, these are the ways we try our best to experience safety and security. But what you have to understand is that these tendencies are not about facilitating connection. They're about control. Because if we believe we won't be able to get our love and belonging needs met, then we'll fight for our own emotional and psychological safety and security. Can you identify a primary tendency in yourself and in your spouse? I'm certain you can in your spouse, but what about you? How do you contribute to your marital dynamic? In mine and Evan's marriage, my primary tendency toward disconnection is to minimize my relational needs, while Evan's primary tendency toward disconnection is to deny his relational needs. So both of us fall into the withdrawal category. And as you've heard me talk about before, we didn't learn a lot of this until four months into our marriage, but already by then, our unhealthy marital dynamic, this withdrawal-withdrawal pattern, was taking shape. And guess what? This is still our default mode when our marital system isn't functioning properly. And so what I want you to understand about my marriage and your marriage is this. Our marital dynamics are created by each of our go-to tendencies when we feel that our emotional and relational needs aren't being met. So when we feel uncared for and we don't have the emotional maturity to communicate it, all of us, you, me, and our spouses alike, adapt to survive and self-protect rather than to connect. I'm going to leave you here today to think about this throughout the week, but your action step is three-part. First, identify your primary tendency when you feel like your emotional and relational needs aren't being met. Second, have your spouse listen to this episode or tell them about it to determine or confirm what his or her primary tendency is. And third, Identify which category each of your tendencies fall into, whether the pursue category or the withdrawal category. In my prayer for your marriage, honestly, as you begin to understand why you work the way you work and why your marriage is functioning the way it's functioning, is that you and your spouse 
would come to know the love of God, which surpasses knowledge, and that the Holy Spirit would equip you to love each other without fear. Can't wait to be back with you next week. Bye-bye. Love is not a battle Love is not a bond Love is just as fragile